0: In this commentary, I'm going to analyze the prologue and the first seven cantos of Tennyson's In Memoriam, A.H.H. You'll have to forgive my voice. I've been pretty sick this week, and since my day job involves a lot of talking, I haven't been able to rest it. I also appreciate your patience through this experiment. It's tricky to figure out exactly how to guide you through the careful study of a complex poem but let me just say again a word about why I am doing so. When I read through a poem like this for the first time, I usually get very little out of it. But what is fascinating to me is that the reason I get little out of it the first time around is the same reason there's so much value to be derived from it after I give it my full attention. Tennyson uses evocative imagery and scrupulously chosen vocabulary and abstract metaphors, and the very sounds of words, the full range of powers given to language, to convey thoughts and emotions that simply couldn't be conveyed with anything less. Many lines that, on first reading, go over my head, in later readings, go straight to my heart. So I take a little at a time, read it over, look up words or references I don't know, try to piece things together, and I slowly feel the veil lift and see the beauty it concealed. Then, when I go back and read the stanzas I have analyzed, the feeling is entirely different. I love the feeling of ownership of the poem that I gain in the process. I just ordered a hundred-year-old copy of this poem, and it will be a treasure on my shelf. If you come to feel the same way, I recommend buying a copy for yourself, and choosing a segment of the poem to memorize. My grandfather was a physician, a hunter, and a fairly taciturn man, yet he could recite a line of poetry to suit any occasion. I'd like to think the members of this group, with all our diverse interests and personalities, will eventually be able to do the same. So let's get started with the prologue. The prologue was difficult at first for me to process, but as it unraveled before me, I was moved by what it is in essence. Tennyson spent seventeen years composing this poem, walking the streets with lines flooding his head, pained and tortured by the memories of his dear friend. And yet he opens this poem with an apology to Jesus for his suffering— He is reaffirming his faith in God's plan and committing himself, instead of suffering, to loving his friend all the more now that he is with God. In the first two stanzas, he declares his faith in God and God's love, though they cannot be proved. He says that God created the sun and the moon and man and the beasts and life and death. He says that we do not know why God made man, but that as a just God, he would not have made him just to die. He says that we have free will, but that our wills ultimately belong to God, and that our human institutions are just transient reflections of God's eternity. He says that knowledge is of things we see, but even that ultimately comes from God. So as our knowledge grows, so should our faith, so that the two, knowledge and faith, mind, and soul, accord in harmony. He asks God to help man who can be foolish to achieve wisdom. He asks God to forgive him for judging his merit and his sins by an earthly standard, rather than letting God be the judge of both. And finally, he asks forgiveness of God for grieving his friend, and resolves to put his faith in God's plan and to love his friend all the more now that he is with God. He asks God to forgive the wild and wandering cries of his poem, and to help him to achieve truth. That was my best attempt at a translation of the prologue. Let me read through it in the original, and see if it's a little bit easier to follow now than it was the first time around. Strong Son of God, Immortal Love, whom we, that have not seen thy face, by faith and faith alone embrace, believing where we cannot prove. Thine are these orbs of light and shade, thou madest life in man and brute, thou madest death, and lo, thy foot is on the skull which thou hast made. Thou wilt not leave us in the dust, thou madest man, he knows not why. HE THINKS HE WAS NOT MADE TO DIE, AND THOU HAST MADE HIM, THOU ART JUST. THOU SEEMEST HUMAN AND DIVINE, THE HIGHEST, HOLIEST MANHOOD THOU. OUR WILLS ARE OURS, WE KNOW NOT HOW. OUR WILLS ARE OURS, TO MAKE THEM THINE. OUR LITTLE SYSTEMS HAVE THEIR DAY, THEY HAVE THEIR DAY AND CEASE TO BE. THEY ARE BUT BROKEN LIGHTS OF THEE. And Thou, O Lord, art more than they. We have but faith, we cannot know, For knowledge is of things we see, And yet we trust it comes from Thee, A beam in darkness, let it grow. Let knowledge grow from more to more, But more of reverence in us dwell, That mind and soul, according well, May make one music as before but vaster. We are fools and slight. We mock thee when we do not fear. But help thy foolish ones to bear. Help thy vain worlds to bear thy light. Forgive what seemed my sin in me, what seemed my worth since I began. For merit lives from man to man, and not from man, O Lord, to thee. Forgive my grief for one removed, Thy creature, whom I found so fair. I trust he lives in thee, And there I find him worthier to be loved. Forgive these wild and wandering cries, Confusions of a wasted youth. Forgive them where they fail in truth, And in thy wisdom make me wise. Now Canto I I found this brief canto to be incredibly thought-provoking. I've often heard people say of their suffering that there's always a silver lining, or console themselves that it was meant to be, or embrace the view that what doesn't kill us makes us stronger. Whatever the truth of these cliches, all of which are meant to mitigate our present grief, Tennyson is stressing precisely the opposite point. Sometimes it is best to embrace our grief. Grieving a loss is an expression of love for the thing lost. So, in experiencing the grief, you are experiencing the love. He begins by saying he's heard it said by one who sings to one clear harp in diverse tones, which I take to be a reference to a poet, that men may rise on stepping stones of their dead selves to higher things. I read somewhere that this was a reference to Longfellow's Ladder of St. Augustine, and whether or not it was specifically a reference to that poem, it certainly seems to refer to that poem's theme. The theme is captured well in the poem's opening sentence. St. Augustine, well hast thou said that of our vices we can frame a ladder if we will but tread beneath our feet each deed of shame. Unquote. Tennyson is challenging the idea of looking at our losses as a ladder on which to ascend to a higher version of ourselves. He questions who can look into the future and find a gain to match the loss we've suffered, who can know that some benefit may come from our tears. Maybe it's better, he says, to immerse ourselves in our pain and in feeling the grief, feel the love that's behind it, Maybe it's better to be drunk with loss, to dance with death, to beat the ground. He would rather experience love and grief clasped together than that time, the victor hours, should show that nothing at all came of his loss, except an overworn emptiness. Now I'll read through Canto I in its original. I held it truth— with him who sings to one clear harp in divers tones, That men may rise on stepping stones Of their dead selves to higher things. But who shall so forecast the years, And find in loss a gain to match, Or reach a hand through time To catch the far-off interest of tears? Let love clasp grief, lest both be drowned, let darkness keep her raven-gloss. Ah, sweeter to be drunk with loss, To dance with death, to beat the ground, Than that the victor hours should scorn The long result of love and boast. Behold the man that loved and lost, But all he was is overworn. I just have to comment here that I love the line Let darkness keep her raven-gloss. We have the idea of a silver lining, but this is something different, finding something beautiful in suffering and in darkness, a paradoxical benefit to be gained, not as a consequence of suffering, but within the suffering itself. What a fascinating idea. Now let's take a look at Canto 2. There can be a strange sort of solace in seeing our internal state reflected in nature. Canto 2 is a poignant example. Tennyson gazes upon an old yew tree, standing in a graveyard, its roots wrapped around the bones of the buried dead, and imagines that it is eternally gripped by a wintry gloom, as he is. He looks upon this tree, standing in a graveyard, and imagines its roots wrapping around the tombstones and winding around the bones of the graveyard's dead. He imagines it standing there as men's lives tick by and as the seasons change, bringing spring flowers and fall winds and summer sun and always maintaining a wintry gloom in every season, and feeling a sense of identity with this stubborn tree He almost feels as if he leaves his body and takes on its form. Let me read Canto 2. Old you, which graspest at the stones that name the underlying dead, thy fibers net the dreamless head, thy roots are wrapped around the bones. The seasons bring the flower again and bring the firstling to the flock, and in the dusk of thee The clock beats out the little lives of men. Oh, not for thee, the glow, the bloom, Who changest not in any gale, Nor branding summer suns avail To touch thy thousand years of gloom. And gazing on thee, sullen tree, Sick for thy stubborn hardihood, I seem to fail from out my blood And grow incorporate into thee. Canto three personifies Sorrow and makes her into a cruel and magisterial priestess who deceives him into thinking that life is hollow and empty. He says that Sorrow has lured him with lying whispers and a sweet and bitter breath into believing that everything is meaningless. The stars run blindly, the earth is a wasteland, and the sun is dying. She has convinced him that all of nature is just an echo of her own hollowness, and he considers whether he should embrace her view, which he knows is blind, or crush her like a vice of blood upon the threshold of the mind. Let me now read through these verses. O sorrow, cruel fellowship, O priestess in the vaults of death, O oh, sweet and bitter, in a breath, what whispers from thy lying lip? The stars, she whispers, blindly run. A web is woven across the sky. From out waste places comes a cry and murmurs from the dying sun. And all the phantom nature stands with all the music in her tone, a hollow echo of my own. A hollow form with empty hands. And shall I take a thing so blind, embrace her as my natural good, or crush her like a vice of blood upon the threshold of the mind? In Canto 4, he considers what it is like to sleep when his will is powerless and he's at the mercy of his subconscious. He can't think through his loss or its meaning, but can only feel it, and his heart feels like a vase of icy water that, if shaken into frost, would break. While he sleeps, he feels his pain like clouds of nameless troubles, but when he wakes, his will can prevail, and he declares that he will not be destroyed by his loss. Here's Canto Four. To sleep I give my powers away, my will is bondsman to the dark, I sit within a helmless bark, and with my heart I muse and say, O heart, how fares it with thee now, that thou shouldst fail from thy desire, who scarcely darest to inquire, what is it makes me beat so low? Something it is which thou hast lost. Some pleasure from thine early years. Break thou deep vase of chilling tears That grief hath shaken into frost. Such clouds of nameless trouble Cross all night below the darkened eyes. With morning wakes the will and cries, Thou shalt not be the fool of loss. Canto V has always been a favorite of mine. It makes my heart ache for Tennyson. In the prologue, on top of the grief he feels over his lost friend, he expresses a sense of guilt because that grief indicates a lack of faith. In Canto 5, he expresses a different sort of guilt. He's struggling to put his grief into words, and he feels remorse that his words are inadequate to express it. He is struggling to give words to a love so profound as to be inexpressible. Here's how I would translate this canto. He first says that it sometimes feels like a sin to express his grief in poetry. Though it becomes tangible, the expression is imperfect, like the body's expression of the soul. But for his anguished mind, composing poetry acts like a narcotic, numbing his pain. So, he says, he will console himself with his poetry, knowing that his words will always inadequately reflect his grief, like coarse cloth is inadequate to keep out the cold. And just like that coarse cloth only reveals the outline of the body, his poetry will only reveal the outline of his pain. Here's Canto five. I sometimes hold it half a sin to put in words the grief I feel. For words, like nature, half reveal and half conceal the soul within. But, for the unquiet heart and brain, a use in measured language lies. The sad mechanic exercise, like dull narcotics, numbing pain. In words, like weeds, I'll wrap me o'er, like coarsest clothes against the cold, But that large grief which these enfold is given in outline, and no more. Canto 6 has not always been one of my favorites, because I don't think I understood it the first time I read this poem, but it's one of my favorites now. In this canto, Tennyson starts out contemptuous of the advice that's been given to him, that other friends remain, that loss is common to the race. We've all been there. He calls this commonplace advice, chaff, well-meant for grain. He says that the fact that such losses are common doesn't make him feel better, but worse. And his heart breaks to think that every day someone suffers like he has. The father who raises a toast to honor his far-off son, only for the son to be shot before he finishes drinking it down. The mother who says a prayer to God for her sailor son, not knowing that even while her head is bowed, his shrouded body is being dropped into the sea. The father raising a toast and the mother saying a prayer knew no more than Tennyson did as he contemplated something he had written and wanted to share with his dear friend. He talks about the feeling of expectation that any moment his friend would return, like the young lover waiting for her love, arranging her hair, a fire in the chimney, taking a rose or a ribbon and thinking about how it will please him, not knowing that he's been drowned or fallen from his horse. Then he ends with the line that absolutely wrenched my heart, Unto me, no second friend. He believes he will never again in his life have a friendship like this one. Someone reminded me of a connection to the Fountainhead, for those who've read it. You have been the one encounter in my life that can never be repeated. Here's Canto 6. One writes that other friends remain, that loss is common to the race, and common is the commonplace, and vacant chaff well-meant for grain. That loss is common would not make my own less bitter, Rather more, too common, Never morning wore to evening, but some heart did break. O Father, whereso'er thou be, Who pledgest now thy gallant son, A shot, ere half thy draft be done, Hath stilled the life that beat from thee. O Mother, praying God will save thy sailor, while thy head is bowed, his heavy-shotted hammock-shroud drops in his vast and wandering grave. Ye know no more than I, who wrought at that last hour to please him well, who mused on all I had to tell, and something written, something thought. Expecting still his advent home, and ever met him on his way, with wishes, thinking here to-day, or here to-morrow he will come. O oh, somewhere meek, unconscious dove, That sittest ranging golden hair, And glad to find thyself so fair, Poor child, that waitest for thy love. For now her father's chimney Glows in expectation of a guest, And thinking this will please him best, She takes a ribbon, or a rose, "'for he will see them on to-night, "'and with the thought her colour burns, "'and having left the glass, "'she turns once more to set a ringlet right. "'And even when she turned, "'the curse had fallen, "'and her future lord was drowned "'in passing through the ford, "'or killed in falling from his horse. "'Oh, what to her shall be the end, "'and what to me remains of good?' To her, perpetual maidenhood, and unto me, no second friend. Canto seven is a tragic and haunting depiction of an experience that will be familiar to anyone who has experienced loss. It is the experience of inhabiting a place that once brought you such joy because of the warm presence of a dear friend. And then experiencing that same place as cold and barren and empty, as robbed of its warm soul because the friend is no longer there. Tennyson describes the feeling of standing before his lost friend's house, recalling the beating of his heart as he used to wait to clasp his friend by the hand, a hand that can be clasped no more. He again expresses a feeling of guilt as he skulks pointlessly around his friend's darkened door. And still in the grips of sorrow, everything around him seems grim—the drizzling rain, the bald street, the blank day. Here's Canto Seven. Dark house, by which once more I stand here in the long, unlovely street. Doors where my heart was used to beat so quickly, waiting for a hand. A hand that can be clasped no more. Behold me, for I cannot sleep. And like a guilty thing, I creep at earliest morning to the door. He is not here. But far away, the noise of life begins again. And ghastly through the drizzling rain, on the bald street, breaks the blank day. Now that we've gone through cantos one through seven, stanza by stanza, I recommend that you go back and either read or listen to them straight through. If you had read it through before, I hope the experience will have been transformed for you. And I hope the experience will provide you at least some evidence that you can take on a difficult poem and with a little bit of work and study and attention, make it something personal and valuable to you. There will be no new reading tomorrow. I want you to take a look again at cantos 8 through 14 and see if you can try your hand at translating them, and next week I'll share my comments on all of those.